Welcome to Tabled Fables, a podcast about fairy tales. I'm Amy Kraft. And I'm Sophie Bushwick. This month, we're discussing a tale that might make you think twice before uninviting guests to dinner parties. Once upon a time. One day in a land far, far away, a king and a queen had a daughter. They had a party to celebrate her christening and all of the fairies in the whole land came to see her. However, there was one fairy who wasn't invited because everyone thought she was evil and she hadn't been seen in many, many years. She showed up and was very insulted that she hadn't been invited. And she said, I'm going to cast a spell so that when the little girl turns 16 years old, she'll prick her finger on a spinning wheel and die. Everyone was very shocked and afraid. One fairy came up to rescue the day and she said, she won't die, but she will fall into a deep sleep until a handsome prince kisses her. So the little girl grew up and when she turned 16, She was walking around the castle grounds, and she saw an old woman sitting at a spinning wheel. She said, hmm, what is that? I'd like to try it out. And as she sat down at the spinning wheel to try it, she pricked her finger, and she fell into a deep sleep. Everyone in the land was very afraid and put her into a comfortable bed. Many, many years passed, and a forest grew up around her. One day... A prince was walking around the woods, and he saw the woman lying asleep. He went to kiss her, and she awoke. They married, and they lived happily ever after. Cool. And this tale is actually my least favorite fairy tale. Why? Because it puts me to sleep. And we're going to get into the history of the tale and some of the different versions of this story, but... Did you know, Sophie, that I was in a play of Sleeping Beauty when I was younger? (laughs) Really? It's true, yes. I was the spider who is not a character in any of the (laughs) other versions of Sleeping Beauty that are out there, but it was in this children's play because I guess they needed parts for every child. Um, And so I was like the dopey sidekick of the evil fairy. And so that part should have been Perot meant to put the spider in his version of the story, but it just got ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Uh, To help us analyze the tale this month, we spoke with Graham Anderson, who's the Emeritus Professor of Classics at the University of Kent in Canterbury, England. Uh, Part of his research involves finding texts or parts of texts of fairy tales in ancient works and sort of finding these hints of a tale way back before the tale was written down. Sleeping Beauty's tale type 410 in the Arne Thompson tale type index, and Graham said that it requires a few things for a story to qualify as a Sleeping Beauty tale. You need at least one of your parents to offend against a supernatural being. This will cause a curse to descend on you of immobility, most characteristically sleep, but it can be silence or some other debilitating phenomenon, if you like. You also need, of course, a rescuer who sometimes rapes the victim in early versions of the story. And very often you have a tailpiece also where the heroine has to escape from the rescuer's murderous family. If elements are missing from this list, um, a tale can still qualify if some other significant indicator is present. What's really interesting is that you, these two incidents in the story, the fact that the, the heroine can be raped sometimes by her rescuer while she's still asleep, and the fact that later she ends up you know, having to um, deal with the, this ogre 
or this monstrous human who wants to eat her and her children. Both of those elements have been completely excised from the version that we know today. So what I find really cool is to see how this, as the story's progressed through time, it's gotten cleaner and cleaner and more acceptable for modern audiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the earliest known version of Sleeping Beauty is the story of Troyes and Zelendine, which is in uh, Persephorus, which was a 14th century French romance series of books. And in this story, there's a princess named Zelendine. She falls in love with this guy named Troyes. Her father sends him to, like, perform all these tasks to, like, prove his love for her and everything. And while he's gone, the princess, Zelandine, falls into this enchanted sleep. And then Troyes has to find her and then impregnates her in her sleep. So she doesn't (laughs) even know what's going on. And then the children are born while she's still sleeping. And then the children are going to try and uh, get some food and then find the finger, which has the, the piece of flax stuck in it that... Uh, put her into the sleep in the first place. And so the child sucks on the flax and pulls it out, and then she just wakes up. She's like, oh, hey, kids of mine, I guess. <laughs> Surprise, you're yeah. a mom. <laughs> yeah, and then so she and she has a ring on her finger because Troyus, after he performed his loving act um, on her, leaves her with a ring. And so she finds the ring, and she's like, oh, this must be from the guy who impregnated me. <laughs> um And then he returns and he marries her, and so it's a happy ending in the end. There's a similar, um, the rescuer rapes the sleeping, or the catatonic princess in a a Catalan version of the tale. And that's, I think, lesser known than the Basile version of the tale. So this is, some people would consider this the first sort of like full version of Sleeping Beauty. It's called uh, Sun, Moon, and Talia. It's an Italian version, first published about 1674. And in this story, again, the princess falls into a sleep because a piece of flax gets embedded in her finger. This is when a king who's on a hunting trip randomly comes across her, thinks, gee, she's pretty, has his way with her, leaves and forgets about her. Uh, He goes back to his wife because this king is married. Meanwhile, the sleeping beauty named Talia becomes pregnant, gives birth. She wakes up and names the children Sun and Moon. And eventually the king remembers that beautiful woman who was asleep in that palace. And he goes back and he finds she's awake and she has children. And he's overjoyed because his wife is barren. And so he's having this sort of second family, and the wife finds out about it. So she sends for Talia's children, and Talia thinks the king wants to see them. But really, the queen is calling for them, and she wants to kill them, cook them, and serve them to their father. And luckily, a cook substitutes two baby goats for the children and hides the children away. But the king eats all these dishes, and the wife gloats, thinking he's eating his illegitimate children. And then that's still not enough for her, and she has Talia sent for, and she wants to have her burnt at the stake. And... Talia realizes that her children are dead, and she says, I don't care what you do with me, just let me disrobe first. And then there's an instant, and the queen's like, oh, great, I get all these beautiful clothes. But each time Talia takes off a layer, she screams because she's buying time. And eventually (laughs) the king hears these shrieks and comes in and rescues her and has the wife burnt in Talia's place. And that whole instant is kind of reminiscent of one of the versions of Red Riding Hood, where there's also a sort of striptease. When you get to the next version of Sleeping Beauty, which is by Perrault, it's called Sleeping Beauty in the Woods and was published in 1697, he's cleaned some elements up but not others. So instead of it, the king being married and having a jealous wife, it's just that the king's mother is an ogress. So that's why she wants to eat the children. And instead of him having his way with the Sleeping Beauty while she's still asleep, she wakes up, he marries her secretly, and then they have the two children that the mother wants to eat. 
And then we have the the tamest version of all, which is the version that's most known today, which is the version by the Brothers Grimm, Little Briar Rose, and that was in 1812. And that version, they, they changed quite a bit to it just to make it as clean as possible and as appropriate for children. The main change is that the Grimm's seem to be almost cutting the story in half. The tale piece about the rape of the heroine is modified. That's already starting to happen in Peru's version, which doesn't actually have the bride wakened by a kiss, but simply has her becoming aware of her surroundings again, awakening after the hundred years are up, but still has in Peru the business of the heroine being threatened by a cannibal threat from the husband's family. And by the time of the Grimm's, all this has disappeared and we have the rather sanitized modern version that we all take for granted from Disney et al. The Grimm's really wanted to collect fairy tales with a Germanic background. And they collected, they, they claimed that they were just taking this from an oral source, but the similarities between this tale and the earlier French version by Perrault makes a lot of scholars think that basically their oral source that they got this tale from had probably read the Perrault version or heard the Perrault version, and that's that really heavily influenced the version that the Grimm's wrote down. Right, and he just wanted to take from the Perrault version a little bit and then clean that up from there and make it a German tale. Yeah. Although one thing that the Grimm's did, they added too, was the idea that instead of in the Perot version, the Sleeping Beauty is isolated in this forest. In the Grimm version, she's surrounded by this hedge of thorns, which is so dense that many suitors try to reach her and they get caught in the Ow. thorns and Ow. die there. Mm-hmm. Which is, they're like, let's cut out one dark element and add another one back in. Right. And uh, so the finally, the, the after 100 years are up, the prince who is, you know, destined to be Sleeping Beauty's true love comes and all the thorns have turned to flowers and a path opens for him straight to the princess. So he kind of get, gets it easy. Yeah. So to and it was guy. almost as if, you know, nature and just the universe kind of knew that, OK, this is the one. Like, let's go ahead. Right. It's time for it's time for the Sleeping Beauty to wake up as opposed to like it being like the prince's power mm-hmm. that wakes her up. It's right. really fate. It is unavoidable. It is your destiny. Graham also talked about some other stories that had maybe hints of Sleeping Beauty in them that we could kind of look to and see, oh, maybe, you know, someone read these stories and got an idea for a story kind of like it. And one of those was Our Lady's Child. And I thought this was a really neat story about a woodcutter and his wife. And they have a daughter and the woodcutter's out in the woods one day and the Virgin Mary comes down and says, oh, you're poor um, and you have this daughter and I can take care of this daughter for you. So the woodcutter's like, okay. And the Virgin Mary takes the daughter and she gets all these cookies and she plays with angels and she's like really happy. And then when she's about 14, the Virgin Mary says, I've got to go on this journey. I'm going to leave the keys of heaven with you. You know, feel free to like look in any of the doors, but don't look in the 13th door. And of course, the curious young girl, as curious as Sleeping Beauty is when she's looking around and sees the spindle, this curious girl goes and opens the 13th door. 
And when the Virgin Mary finds out, punishes her and uh, puts her like into some deep sleep and then throws her in the desert somewhere. And she wakes up and she doesn't have her voice. Uh, she's in the desert. So she just like finds a tree and sits down at the tree <laughs> in the <laughs> desert and, hang, you know, is there year after year. And then a king comes along and finds her and it's a kind of a similar Sleeping Beauty type tale that Graham also talked about. Yeah. And I mean, in, later in Our Lady's Child, she's almost burnt at the stake, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then like rescued in the nick of time. Exactly. Rescued in the nick of time because I think she, she, the Virgin Mary keeps coming to her and says, are you ready to come clean about what you did? And she doesn't for a while. And so more, she's punished some more after that. And then finally she says, okay, fine, I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything is restored to goodness again. And then there's also, if you look back in antiquity, there's other hints of sort of goddesses with stories similar to this with long sleeps. Like there's a story of a Pasiphaea, which means goddess to all, who is uh, the bride of sleep. Uh, she's literally married to sleep. That sounds like fun, right? Be married to sleep. Yeah, just no sleep one talking all the back time. to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what that means exactly to be married to sleep. Does that mean that you can put people to sleep? Are you that like would be an, kind of awesome, actually? Are you like Ambien? <laughs> <laughs> the goddess of Ambien. <laughs> it's interesting to talk about these tales that have elements of Sleeping Beauty, but let's talk about the tale itself. One element that's very common in in many different versions of the story is that the reason this girl falls asleep is because of a spindle or a spinning wheel. She either pricks her finger on the spindle or she gets a piece of flax stuck in her finger or something like this, and that's what is the trigger for her falling into this catatonic state. It's fairly common in um, folk tales for the very good reason that it's an activity associated with women's work throughout antiquity, through the Middle Ages, and indeed well into the era of um, industrial society. There may be a kind of submerged metaphor in the idea that um, as you spin flax, so you spin a tail. It's also an economic factor which may come through into fairy tales if you think of Jack Zeitz's interpretation, for example, of the Rumpelstiltskin tale. The um, girl who can spin gold is pointing to the economic advantages of being able to spin flax skillfully. And what about the sleep itself? You know, what does this mean that she has this long sleep during which really, I mean, especially if you're looking at the early versions, she transitions from childhood to womanhood, even to motherhood in some versions, while she's still asleep? Betelheim and um, uh, like-minded interpreters relate the idea of the long sleep to the listlessness in female adolescence, and there might well be something in this as well. And there's another way to interpret that long sleep too, which is death, Um, which is, (laughs) I I know it's not the the happiest of things to to talk about, but, um, you know, if you talk about, think about death, you know, and, and resurrection and sleeping beauty is, you know, after her long sleep, she's kind of waking up from this resurrection and, you know, some people like Jack Sipes have suggested that 
Sleeping Beauty, she triumphs over death because she awakens from this sleep. And then she knows after, you know, after that, she knows how to avoid danger. And then she kind of almost gets smarter in her sleep. Let's move on to the to the Grimm's version with their sort of like hedge of briars surrounding the, the, the prince, sleeping princess, this sort of thorny growth that can trap men. Uh what do you think the symbolism of that one is? Well, there's the symbolism of this briar kind of relates to a Germanic tale in Norse mythology called Brunhilda. Obviously, symbolisms are very much in the minds of the interpreter. They're not spelled out absolutely explicitly. But what it reminds me of in the first instance is the kind of Brunhilde motif that you can trace back into early Germanic medieval narrative, if you like, where Odin set defense around the um, virginity of Brunhilde and only the destined brave hero, Sigurd in this case, will be able to demonstrate his heroic courage by getting through. And in Brunhilde, like, that's the story of this woman who she had to determine a fight between two people and, and Odin the god was in favor of one and she chose the other one to win and so Odin was like, I'm going to punish you and throws her in this castle and puts this, like, wall of fire around her. And then the hero in this tale who has to, like, fight dragons and all these battles and stuff and go to rescue her and marry her is this character named Siegfried. And I just want to make a shout-out to my cat, whose name is Siegfried, too. Hey, Siegfried, I hope you're listening to this. (laughs) And an interesting thing about this tale was that Remember, the Grimm's version came out, and they were trying to say, no, 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 we're not like Perot at all. (laughs) And so they they pinned a lot of stuff on Brunhilde on this Germanic tale, and they're like, "Uh, we're a lot more like Brunhilde, like that story there. That certainly explains why they put the thorns in. And the whole thing about thorns reminds me of, of plants. I feel like there's a lot of plant symbolism in the story. You've got thorns, the character's name is Briar Rose, there's sort of themes of growth, and then... The, along with that, there's these themes of, of sex that we talked about earlier, you know, pricking your finger, penetrating the thorny hedge. And the combination of this sex symbolism and nature symbolism has made Graham Anderson suggest that maybe the story has some of its earliest origins in t- stories of fertility goddesses. Because a lot of stories about, of, about fertility goddesses, they sleep during the winter and awaken in spring. So it's sort of this elemental force of nature that is, it, during the seasons of the year, it's sort of falling asleep in fall, winter is slumbering, and the whole earth is asleep, there's no growth, there's no change, and then spring comes and everything's in flower, and animals are humping each other, <laughs> and it's sort of like the, this rebirth, and so it's interesting to tie the Sleeping Beauty story and a lot of the motifs from it back into this idea of fertility goddesses. I wanted to talk about if there's a moral to this tale, because we've talked about morals in other tales, other fairy tales in the past. So does Sleeping Beauty have a moral? Well, according to Perot, not really. He, he At the end of each of his stories, he liked to put this little verse with the moral in it. So at the end of Red Riding Hood, he's got this verse about how you shouldn't talk to strangers or wolves because wolves are actually men and they want to take advantage of you. And at the end of this story, he says... Uh, Now, our story seems to show that a century or so, late or early, matters not. True love comes by fairy lot. Some old folk will even say it grows better by delay. But so you're like, all right, so the moral is 
uh, it's okay to wait 100 years for love because it's fairies who determine true love. But then Perot goes on to say, yet this good advice, I fear, helps us neither there nor here. Though philosophers may prate how much wiser tis to wait, maids will be a sighing still. Young blood must when young blood will. <laughs> so he's basically saying these young people, they fall in love. Wise advice isn't going to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> And Graham had a really funny interpretation of, or like a really funny idea of what a moral for this story could be, which I liked a lot. I think I would be tempted to um, give a kind of sarcastic reply to the question by saying, what does it teach you? Well, it teaches you not to have parents who can't count the cutlery and um, by offending um, the, the bad fairy, by not giving her the same tableware as everyone else has, brings about the curse in the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they could have avoided all this trouble if they had just been nice to the fairy who eventually cursed her. Or just had, you know, like, why do you have seven place settings? Why not eight? We all like even <laughs> numbers anyway, you know? Yeah, they have to give the, they end up, in some versions, they just don't invite the fairy who curses her. In some versions, they give her a janky plate instead of the fancy plates that everyone else has and it really pisses her off. Yeah, I know. And, I mean, I just think of, of another version of this story or another retelling of this story could be Sleeping Beauty and her seeking revenge on her parents. Like, <laughs> come on, like, look what you guys put me through. <laughs> you know, I didn't do anything wrong. You know? <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode. Please join us next month when we talk about The Three Little Pigs, which is my favorite tale. And in the meantime, you can check out new fairy tale tidbits at our blog, tabledfables.tumblr.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tabled Fables. If you have any questions, email us tabledfables at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>